Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. My name is Maurice Selby, and you are listening to the Health in Harlem podcast, now featured on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. And accompanying me, my colleagues. My name is Reed. My name is Michael Holmes. What's going on, fellas? How are you guys, man? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, Just trying to stay out of the heat right now. Word. Yeah, Yeah, recently I just, I went to the, the beach. Uh, but I made sure to re-listen to our heat illnesses <laughs> podcast uh, before going out, you know, just to keep safe. Yo, you're the man. That's what's up, yo. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've been shying away from the heat. It's actually been cooler down here in Georgia over the last couple of days. So that was nice. We were actually out in the park um, yesterday. But yeah, man, it's it's just, you know, we're in the, the heat of summer, <laughs> the, the thick of it right now. Um, and I'm so glad that we did that that program, man. We just got some really good information out there. Got some good feedback about it, actually. And um, I think we definitely got some good information out there for folks to use to protect themselves. But, you know, one thing I was thinking about um, coming into this show was just I hope people out there, please, ladies and gentlemen, uh, listening to this podcast, please let us know your feedback. One thing that I, uh, we really strive not to be on this show is sort of negative, you know, sort of fear mongers, um, you know, alarmists. I don't want to come across like that. How do you guys feel about that? Do you think we sound like that on this show? Uh, I think sometimes we do because there's, there's so many things out there, you know, there, and there's so many lifestyle changes that can be made that we encourage. Um, so I, I do agree with you, but I hope that we don't sound too preachy when we're trying to drive the points home. 
All right, good. I mean, I don't think so personally. I think we definitely talk about, and one thing, ladies and gentlemen, I can assure you is that we talk about some very real things out there. And if you look at our past shows, um, and I'm talking about even pre-podcast version of Health in Harlem, you know, we talked about things that have really come to light as being significant problems, um, you know, shortly after we've actually talked about those issues, one of them being our topic today, um, tick-borne illnesses, which we're going to get into. But one thing that, you know, before we jump into the topic, I think that we really also do very well is we give prescriptive measures. <laughs> like we don't leave you hanging, trying to navigate this stuff or these risks, you know, just or, or just having that out there and just walking around sort of alarmed. Like we talk about the reality of these things. Um, you know, one thing I think that's fortunate is that a lot of the things that we talk about, um, you know, there are many times where people are at low risk from having those complications, but there are situations where you're at increased risk. And I think that's where you really benefit from this program is just knowing those situations where you might be at increased risk from um, acquiring a coronavirus infection or a heat related illness, right? We talked about it being hot and humid and, you know, when the heat index is crazy high, <laughs> like it was a couple of days ago with me out there running in 90 degree weather and, the, and there's, you know, 70% humidity, um, you know, at that point, it's well over 100 degrees for the quote unquote actual temperature. You're at an increased risk of having some issues. And so I kept that run very brief <laughs> knowing that. But I think that's what we're that's what we're aiming for, ladies and gentlemen. So, you know, stick with us, man. Um, I, know, I, I don't want you to come away from this show having sort of a negative outlook. Um, I just want you I think. We all want you to feel empowered in listening to this podcast. So I just had to get that out there, man. I was on my mind and don't want to be a negative, like Debbie Downer type person or show. <laughs> I don't know if you guys echo that. No, yeah, definitely. Because even we live going out on that beach that one time, you know, it's like that whole podcast is going through my mind. Like, oh, my goodness, I got to watch out for for a heat stroke. I got to, you know, but um, <laughs> Do you I mean, know what though? knowledge to have, you know. But I think it's dope that we, okay, one thing, ladies and gentlemen, we still have lives. Like we still go out and do things. And, you know, like we went out with uh, some very close friends of ours, right? In the heat of the heart of the the coronavirus pandemic down here in the, the Southeast United States. Um, and we went out with some close friends that we know have been very careful. Um, we still wore masks around them. They wore masks around us. We kept appropriate distances. Um, but we went out on the Beltline yesterday and had a good time. Um, and there were other people out there, you know, sort of running, skating, doing things, a lot of them wearing masks, thankfully, um, and keeping appropriate distance. But I think, you know, armed with good information, you can go out there and really live your best life safely. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, so I'm glad you went to the beach, Michael. That's what's up. I'm glad to hear that, man. <laughs> All the while being aware of, you know, staying hydrated, not drinking fire water too much on the, right. break, on the beach, not too much. <laughs> I would still indulge and have a little fire water, but, you know, yeah. knowing that, hey, I need to keep my hydration up and limit the intake to to be safe. But, yeah, man, let's just let's get into our topic. So the funny thing is, you know, I was thinking also about how we look at these large. I think a lot of times we've been distracted by some of the large threats out there. Right. Um, and if you talk about the biggest ones, like things like asteroids and stuff, I remember growing up like, oh, my God, man, an asteroid can hit the planet, which is true. It can <laughs> like the risk is very low, but it can. Um, it can happen. It has happened. It probably will happen again. Um, hopefully not soon. But, you know, you think of things like nuclear war and stuff and 
I was thinking about these like old 1940s and 50s films and you know you see like the giant arachnid or a huge spider and stuff and chasing people this thing is the size of a house you know the United States is sort of mobilizing all forces to like defeat this thing oh that's funny I see a cat wandering <laughs> in, the, in the screen it looks like looks like a yeah. big snake or something so that's the funny thing is like you know see everybody running from this threat and they're able to mobilize against it and um i was thinking about it. i was like well you know if something like that really happened it'd be a lot better than what we're dealing with now because like, <laughs> a lot of these invisible threats right yeah. like you see a big damn spider you know to run the opposite direction you know we have like vehicles that we can probably outrun it <laughs> for the most part um but then we look at uh, things like the coronavirus and, you know, asymptomatic transmission of this virus, right? So it's an, literally an invisible disease. It potentially, um, in some cases, being airborne. When we think about this giant house-sized spider, let's uh, picture it being fractured into a billion pieces, or actually a billion mini spiders, or let's envision a big tick, right? A house-sized tick that is then splintered into a billion smaller-sized ticks to the point where at the period of a, a sentence in the transcribed version of this podcast, maybe you'd see a, a larvae, maybe that size, right? And they're scattered. Now we have a huge wind that scattered them throughout the U.S. Um, that's, that's what we're dealing with, essentially. And although the threat would seem larger when having one huge house size tick, <laughs> like this uh, threat of billions out there just lurking in the bushes, in your yard, um, places where we like to congregate and hang out, uh, there's a, a real risk out there, man. And it's, it's wild to think of it as these sort of small, seemingly minuscule, uh, I would even say invisible things can be significant um, risks to life and happiness, right? Uh, so it's just something, I'm sorry, I'm getting all cerebral here, but uh, that's what we're talking about today, man. It's just these, this tick-borne illness. And unfortunately, you know, I thought the, or at least one of the heights of uh, the pandemic right now in this country, you know, we add to that, that this is uh, becoming much more of a problem uh, recently, it's something that's been building up for the last couple of decades now. Uh, it's just another thing that we just got to pay attention to. I know we got these other things going on uh, in the world right now, but it's something that we do need to have some information about um, uh, to protect ourselves. And so that's that's it, man. We'll just get into it. But um, yeah, let's just talk about vector-borne illnesses. Sure, yeah. Um, so currently, according to the WHO, uh, vector-borne diseases account for more than 17% of all infectious diseases, um, causing more than 700,000 deaths annually. Uh, can so we just clarify diseases. real quick, uh, Reed, sorry, if we can just clarify for our listening audience as far as what vector-borne disease is? Yeah, so vector-borne disease is uh, something that's carried by some other organism and transmitted to humans via contact with them. Got it. And so 700,000 deaths annually yes, sir. across the world. Goodness gracious. Okay. Um, so these, these diseases can be uh, parasites, bacteria, or viruses. They're not specifically uh, just bacteria or something. 
Um, and not only that, but the majority of emerging diseases are zoonotic, uh, such as carried by vectors like ticks and mosquitoes. Um, yeah. So when you talk about the outlook of emerging diseases in the future, um, the majority of those are going to be vector-borne. Um, and this is only going to get worse over time as climate and environmental changes drive expansion of uh, the habitats of these vectors. Um, so ticks like warm climates, so do mosquitoes, they like warm and wet climates. Mm -hmm. um, and those climates are only going to become more prevalent as uh, climate change continues to progress. And part of that, ladies and gentlemen, we're also talking about, you know, diseases like malaria, dengue, um, chikungunya. Uh, these are also vector-borne or zoonotic diseases. So these are spread by um, animals and humans. And actually, um, coronavirus is another zoonotic or believed to be a zoonotic, um, or at least this version of coronavirus, right? SARS-CoV-2, um, believed to have come from possibly bats or linked to bats. Um, mainly, which we think is a reservoir, but also there is some evidence pointing toward pangolins being the source of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, but yeah, man, these, these infections, a range of different organisms involved, right? Not just these vectors or these carriers of the infections, uh, but uh, it is at the microscopic level when we talk about those bacteria, viruses, and parasites, um, this is what we're discussing when we talk about ticks today. And uh, this is really, as we said, an, a really an emerging problem, uh, specifically with ticks in the United States. Um, and we're learning a lot about them. Um, you know, the surveillance data out there showing a clear spread northward. Um, and as Reed said, is uh, believed potential for significant expansion uh, due to climate change and also some of the behavioral uh, changes um, with humans. <laughs> Let's start right where part of the problem, actually, uh, something we can hopefully get into at a later point. Um, but yeah, this is uh, something that we see with other vector-borne diseases, um, things that are even transmitted by mosquitoes, pretty much the same point. But when we talk about the tick problem here and in uh, understanding that ticks are responsible, largely responsible for the majority of vector-borne diseases in the United States. That's why we really had to just focus on uh, that particular entity or organisms, just looking at ticks and, you know, where they are, what they're doing, how they transmit disease. That's really the, the purpose of uh, this program. And according to the Department of Health and Human Services, Tick-Borne Diseases Working Group, the reports of cases of Lyme disease have increased over the last 25 years to now 300,000, greater than 300,000 cases diagnosed annually. Uh, the number of counties in the United States considered to be high risk for Lyme disease has increased more than 300% in, in the Northeastern United States uh, by more than 250% in North Central states. And the CDC recognizes now 18 tick-borne pathogens and seven of which have been identified since 2004. And we're actually learning a lot more, not just about um, the actual entities or uh, particular pathogens that uh, come from ticks, but also associated disease entities. Uh, some of them that are really alarming, man, like red meat allergies that are developing um, or at least linked to tick-borne illness. And according to the Centers for Disease Control, New York State is second only to Pennsylvania in the number of cases of diagnosed tick-borne illnesses and among the top 20% of 
of places where mosquito-borne illnesses are transmitted. Um, and so just taking all of this into account, <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry. All right. I, like I said, we are not fear mongers, but this is a real, <laughs> this is a real thing. This is really out there. Um, you know, most people that are diagnosed and treated for tick-borne diseases recover fully, right? So there is some good news in all of this. Uh, but one thing that we do have to be cognizant of is that 10 to 20% will suffer from persistent symptoms. And these can be chronic and even debilitating. And this is resulting in $1.3 billion in direct medical costs and quite, quite possibly much more. You know, these are always underestimates <laughs> like in all of these epidemiological uh, studies and estimates. Whenever those numbers are mentioned, usually those numbers are much higher. And uh, unfortunately, the news and media coverage and reporting and even government appropriations for these problems don't match the scale of the issue. And so that's why we really wanted to focus on this, um, getting you guys some good information so that you can nip it in the bud, right? Just present, prevent it entirely, know the risk um, as we're out and about, especially with coronavirus right now. Uh, you know, a lot of congregation happening outdoors as opposed to indoors, um, people going out for picnics and stuff and hiking and stuff, which is great. We highly encourage that on this show. Definitely part of a healthy lifestyle. However, we must be aware of what is happening around us so that we can live a healthy, happy lifestyle. So I also think it's important to acknowledge and understand the life cycle of ticks uh, as well so we can understand when we are the most at risk for these diseases because like any other animal, uh, you know, ticks want to feed, they want to, they want to populate, they want to grow. Um, and so are you serious? Like, like what, like human beings? Almost, almost <laughs> like, like living organisms. I'd say the only difference is, uh, ticks, um, are kind of gross and, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, humans are kind of gross too, you know, I guess we're all the same. And so, so, so essentially they want to live peaceful and happy lives when they're not like boring into our skin and sort of nestling themselves yeah, and hitchhiking on us. <laughs> yeah. We also <laughs> they just want to make babies. multiple eggs, you know? Um, but yeah, so, <laughs> so basically how the, the lifestyle of the tick, uh, comes about is, you know, the adult female would, uh, drops, uh, a host of eggs and these eggs hatch into six legged larvae. And these larvae, as because they're smaller, um, they often look towards smaller hosts to uh, feed off of, such as mice and small rodents, that sort of thing. Um, and after their first feeding off of a host, they molt into what they're called as nymphs, which are a little larger, and they have eight legs. And it's usually at this point where nymphs will start to uh, attach to hosts such as humans. Um, and so the, at that point, uh, we are at risk for contracting diseases from direct contact from vector-borne illnesses, as we're talking about. Um, they could also attach to, after their second host, if they want to attach to, uh, you know, larger rodents um, and mm -hmm. possibly have another chance of contacting, getting in contact with, uh, you know, uh, diseases and bacteria that are harmful to humans, they can uh, molt into adult, into adult, um, adult ticks. Um, and at that point, they can also transmit their diseases onto humans. Um, and so for an example, uh, the, the Ixodes scapularis tick, um, I, or it's also known as the deer tick or the, the black-legged tick, 
Um, and it's also it's very um, common uh, vector for you know Lyme disease. Uh, the most prominent times that they are <clears throat> infecting humans is around May and June. Um, so that's yeah. So that's basically their life cycle. Um, and once they once they molt into adults, um, they'll you know they'll continue to lay eggs, and the cycle repeats. Mm. Um, and so yeah, that's pretty much that. And they're fascinating creatures, man. This is like all over the 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 duration of two years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing that I actually found very interesting is that uh, we can sort of get an idea, just as with the influenza virus and um, sort of other infectious diseases, we can kind of predict what the next season will look like mm-hmm. um, based on uh, certain things that we see in the environment. So, for instance... Uh, epidemiologists and individuals that study uh, ticks, they look at the acorn burden in a particular region, and that can give them an idea as to how many mice are going to be expected uh, the next season, right? Because if there's more acorns for mice to eat, the mice are going to eat those, they make more babies, Mm -hmm. and this is uh, just another sort of feeding frenzy for more ticks, uh, the next season. And it's actually anticipated that uh, this year, you know, while we're expected to have a decently mild uh, tick burden, um, as predicted from the acorn burden uh, a couple of years ago, uh, it's believed that next season, so the, the year of 2021 would be a particular rough year because last fall's acorn burden was pretty large. So uh, just something interesting. It's really just fascinating understanding these life cycles um, one, because I mean, I find it interesting, right? These, uh, gross flesh boring, <laughs> oh, man. uh, insects that sort of lodge themselves into us. And really all they want to do is live peaceful, happy lives and make babies. Um, uh, but it's really important because as Michael said, we really get an idea as to when the risk is greatest. And we have a lot of these nymphs and these are mainly in hard ticks. So, um, uh, genera such as dermacenter and blioma, ticks and even, um, as you said, Ixodes ticks, in particular Ixodes scapularis, um, right? May and June is sort of the high point, really from March to July, August. That's when we see a lot of these nymphs, these hard ticks um, in their nymph stage. This is when they're really looking for that that big blood meal mm-hmm. um, and are looking to attach themselves to um, individuals such as ourselves. And unfortunately, at this stage, they can harbor, as uh, Michael said, these uh, transmissible pathogens, right? So things like Borrelia burgdorferi, which we'll talk about, mm-hmm. um, and thus causing Lyme disease, things like Rickettsia rickettsii, causing Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and a host of other, I mean, there's so many, um, as we said, 18 that we know of, according to the CDC, and potentially even more pathogens that can be transmitted by these ticks. So um, just something interesting to know. Now, I think the next thing that we really need to focus on really is just where they like to hang out, right? We kind of understand um, the life cycle, but uh, where we, where they like to congregate and hang out and look for that blood meal is very important. Now, fortunately, ticks like to hang out in the woods, right? So your well-manicured lawn, that new fire pit that you put in your backyard probably is not the favorite hangout spot for a lot of ticks. However, um, while their affinity for wooded areas does not mean that the risk is greatest in thick fairy tale as far as um, in an interview with the New York Times, Dr. Richard Osfeld, 
a tick specialist and disease ecologist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies. Um, he basically said that they are extremely abundant in small forest patches of a couple acres or less. So those large expanses of continuous forests tend to harbor fewer ticks than little fragment of forest in suburbia or an agricultural landscape. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but this is mainly due to larger populations of mice in these quote unquote mini forests. And I actually live right next to one of those. Like when I read about that, I was like, oh man, like that is the perfect setup. It's like this little area, you know, a couple acres um, where it's actually very dense, like kind of foresty looking um, wooded area. Um, but I was looking at, it, I'm like, man, that's probably like a tick heaven because you have all of these sort of smaller housing developments, developments around there. Um, and so the wooded areas that were probably in these spaces where we live right now, where we sort of forced all of the rodents out, right, um, through our development. Now they're all hanging out in this little wooded bush um, over near my house. And so um, with that said, this might be a, a heavily tick burdened area um, just on the outskirts of of my housing development. Um, fascinating and scary at the same time. <laughs> um, so my daughter and I will not be hanging out in it, even though I definitely thought about it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really it. Um, and you know, one thing, uh, that's also really important is that, um, you know, we think about things like Lyme disease and Ixodes scapularis, these, uh, black legged ticks. Uh, it was always thought that deer were the most common sort of harbinger of these ticks. Whereas it's actually, as you said, these smaller rodents, right? So mice, um, things like chickmunks and stuff. Um, but especially the white-footed mouse, when we talk about Lyme disease, the white-footed mouse has been implicated as the the major sort of um, harbinger of tick-infested um, and and therefore Lyme disease-carrying ticks. And so it's something that we just got to really think about. So that deer tick name for these ticks is a misnomer. It's actually, oh, we got to be worried about the white-footed mice. Yeah, man. So fascinating and scary at mm-hmm. the same time. But now we're armed with that information and we can make decisions uh, uh, off of that information. Yeah, so I think it's... Don't hang out in small wooded areas. I think, Sorry, it's, I think it's also an important question to ask uh, not only where do these ticks live, but also where would we come in contact with them? Um, mm. So, you know, obviously we're, we can come in contact with them where they live, um, but they can also we can also come in contact with them in other areas uh, they can hitch mm-hmm. a ride inside on our pets or on family members. So they, you can find them in your house without even going outside. Um, so that's mm-hmm. another concern just to be aware of. Yeah. And you know, one you, thing uh, too. Oh, sorry. I actually sorry. had a friend um, that went, they were, they had some study abroad and they actually managed to bring a tick on the plane with them. They didn't even notice it until they were like in the airport and they had a tick like, wow. lodged into their calf. Um, so yeah, oh, wow. I, you're right. It, you, they could be found like anywhere if you come in contact with them. And as we said, you know, they're most active in the spring, summer and the fall. So definitely something to be aware of, right? We won't be out of the woods, you know, when school starts again, if anything, we got to keep our antennas up. Um, but they can be found in cooler areas, uh, usually under trees, um, in the brush, leaf litter, any area where there's tall grasses, um, 
that provide cover and shade from the sun. This is where ticks quest, right? And questing, um, I mean, I love the way that sort of, uh, I guess it's entomologist. I'm not sure who sort of coined that term, but questing, right? Like these ticks trying to leave this happy, peaceful lifestyle. <laughs> That's the only thing. I mean, I just respect them as living organisms. But, you know, as they're questing, and this is the term that's used when they're looking for that blood meal, they're literally hanging out on these sort of tall bushes or um, or brush or even just chilling out in sort of a, you know, collection of leaves and that brush um, in those little mini foresty er uh, areas. And that's what they do is they just literally just sit there and wait for um, either small rodents, right? Or things like deer, maybe some larger animals, or even us as we're hiking through the woods, right? Trying to stay coronavirus free with our masks on. Um, meanwhile, we're wearing shorts <laughs> or like your, like your friends, Michael, right? And maybe they had some, um, uh, shorts on or something or something that did not clearly, um, or cover their calves or completely cover that calf. And that's how, that's how the, the tick got there essentially. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that, those are areas that we really need to, um, be on the lookout for. And I think one thing too, that we really need to get out there. One misconception is that, you know, this is not something that is just a problem in, as we said, heavily forested areas. Um, you know, just from our talking about these small wooded plots, right? Um, so suburban communities definitely at risk when you have those little wooded areas, um, near housing developments and stuff, but, uh, also people in the inner city, uh, we're not out the woods, right? So people were probably wondering at the start of this podcast, like health in Harlem, talk about ticks. Come on. Like <laughs> we, we live in the concrete jungle, bro. <laughs> There's no, but no, like, you know, there are um, documented cases, obviously of Lyme disease in New York city. Now the majority of them do come from uh, um, infections that were acquired in the outskirts. So people going into Long Island to hang out or hiking upstate New York, but there are documented cases that are, um, uh, that arose from New York City. And according to NewYorkCity.gov, uh, ticks have been found throughout New York City, and there are some black-legged ticks in the Bronx and Staten Island that have tested positive for Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases. Um, and so while not as prevalent, right, in the tick burden, probably not nearly as uh, uh, large as other areas of New York, um, especially upstate and, and sort of out in suburban communities in Long Island, you know, the, the burden is still there. The risk is still there and we have to exercise caution, right? When we let our kids actually, we, when we were out, um, uh, by Piedmont park yesterday, um, you know, Imani is running around and she went into this little area where literally exactly what, like the little leaves on the ground and stuff, it was under this bushy area, nice shade there. And I was like, Imani, you cannot, I just can't, you know, let you play there. Like I, I can't feel comfortable and let you play there. I had to like, you know, remove her from that area. She was chasing like some little ducks that came <laughs> over to hang out with us or we were having a pink picnic. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, in my mind, like that was the red flag. It was like, Oh, you can't play in that area. You know, everywhere else, the, the grass was a little bit lower and stuff and um, probably a lower risk for um, ticks hanging out there. But definitely that little brushy area with the leaves falling is nice and shaded and it was literally under a larger bush that I was like, oh, man, they're probably like having a party in there. They see this cute little kid uh, coming. And yeah. Um, but yeah, man, it's it's a real risk. And ladies and gentlemen, while again, we are not trying to scare you. 
<laughs> but just trying to arm you with some good information uh, about these ticks, man. They're out there. They're waiting. They're questing and looking for that blood meal. So just be mindful of your environment, where these ticks like to hang out, and then begin to put in measures to protect yourself. And we're going to get into that uh, just a little bit further. You are listening to Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM, New York, the voice of Harlem. Health in Harlem airs every Thursday from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. on WHCR. We also have the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about tonight's program, you can leave comments on our website at Podbean. You can also check us out on Facebook. Just type in Health in Harlem in the search box. We'll pop right up and you can leave your questions there. Thank you for listening and enjoy. So I guess the natural progression of this conversation about tick-borne illnesses will lead us into a talk about these illnesses. Chief among them, ladies and gentlemen, by far the most common of these diseases is Lyme disease. Um, I remember hearing about it actually when I was younger, um, hearing about it on the news, uh, adolescent years, and I literally thought of like Lyme, like the, <laughs> like the mineral. Um, but now nah, this is named after Lyme, Connecticut. Um, and you know, this is a disease that is caused by a bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi named after its discoverer. And this is a pathogen that is largely found in hard ticks, um, especially the Ixodes scapularis tick being sort of the chief carrier of this disease. And now the good news, right, with this is that um, only about two to three percent of individuals um, that are bitten or fed on by a tick might uh, acquire this disease. And, um, you know, many people will actually recover uh, fully from Lyme disease. Um, actually, you know, when we look at sort of the number of cases around the country, even though they've been increasing, um, it's, it's really thought that the number of cases far exceeds what is diagnosed annually. As we said, you know, 300,000 tick-borne illnesses diagnosed in the United States each year. Um, but there are estimates that that number is far larger. And that's because the majority of individuals will have um, mild to no symptoms. Um, so there are a lot of people out there that, you know, think they have little head colds or um, some sort of viral illness. Um, but in fact, they might indeed have uh, Lyme disease. Now, one thing that we really need to understand is that um, this disease is something that can cause complications. And if we look at the stages of Lyme disease, so the early localized Lyme disease refers to what we call isolated erythema migraine migraines. Um, and symptoms of an undifferentiated sort of febrile illness, right? And so this stage usually occurs one to 30 days after the initial tick bite. Most individuals don't even recall 
being bitten by a tick or finding a tick on themselves. So just because you do not remember having uh, a bite does not mean that, you know, you might not have been exposed to um, this particular illness. Now, in that first stage, as we said, uh, erythema migrans, this is a char very characteristic rash that can develop um, in many individuals, actually a minority individuals, um, about 20%. And this rash is sort of a targetoid or a target looking lesion. Uh, so there's an area of roundness. There is a clearing just out of that first um, outer area of redness. There is a clear space. And then there's another red area uh, within that clear space. And literally it looks like a target sign. Um, you know, 80% of individuals with Lyme disease have only one episode of erythema migrans, whereas 20% may have recurrent episodes. So, you know, these rashes sort of coming and going um, and multiple lesions can be seen in 20% of individuals. And they really result from this sort of what we call hematogenous or bloodborne spread of the bacteria um, throughout the body. And it's not really the result of multiple tick bites. It's literally just the um, spread of this disease. And just sort of looking closer, right, if we think about uh, Borrelia burgdorferi um, or what we call spirochetes, um, it's a particular type of bacteria uh, shaped like a spiral. And they're actually kind of special when we look at them in comparison to other bacterial pathogens um, in that they are, are very known to spread throughout the body right? Both through the blood and within our various tissues, uh, which is, is fascinating. And it actually lines up with sort of the stages of this disease. And as we said, so during this first stage, um, in this sort of, you know, one to 30 day period after the bite, individuals might have symptoms, right? So they're going to have symptoms that kind of go along with this spread. Um, and so they're going to have things like fevers, um, as we said, sort of this febrile illness, right? Febrile is just um, a reference to a person having a fever. Um, they can have headaches. They can have myalgias or muscle aches, um, joint pains they can experience. Um, and as we said, they can also experience this rash, which is not indicative of multiple bites, but again, spread of the pathogen throughout the body. Um, and one thing that's interesting is that this is not just limited to Lyme disease itself, but we can see this with other tick-borne illnesses as we'll get into throughout the show. Now, if we talk about stage two Lyme disease, this is what we call early disseminated Lyme disease, and it usually develops three to 10 weeks after that initial bite. Approximately one in four individuals infected with Borrelia burgdorferi have signs and symptoms of uh, this disseminated or widespread disease at that initial presentation, so kind of appearing in the stage one. And uh, again, we see systemic manifestations, so fever, right, malaise, a person that just feels generalized weakness. But what's interesting in this stage, we begin to see one or more organ systems become involved um, as this organism spreads throughout the, the blood and the lymphatic sy uh, sy systems. And basically, it starts to spread to distal sites. So the musculoskeletal system is affected. We can also see neurologic symptoms, um, you know, and finally, uh, some of the more concerning things that we can start to see uh, organs like the heart being affected with individuals developing 
things like heart block, which can lead to, um, in the most extreme sense, uh, inflammation of the heart muscle or carditis, and even things like heart block. And ultimately, uh, if it gets really severe, things like cardiovascular collapse, um, which is essentially your heart stopped working, right? And you're prone to serious disability and even death. Um, that's the worst case scenario, ladies and gentlemen. Um, when we talk about the neurologic manifestations, um, also known as Lyme neuroborreliosis, it is reported that in five to 20% of cases, uh, individuals can experience this. And um, in the United States, one thing that is really interesting, and this is kind of the classic descriptor of neurologic involvement with Lyme disease, is that individuals can develop uh, what we describe as a cranial neuropathy, right? Which is really a fancy word to say that they can have nerve dysfunction. And the classic thing that we see is Bell's palsy, especially um, bilateral Bell's palsy. So an individual that has, I don't know, have you guys ever seen uh, Bell's palsy? Any of you guys or come across my, no? Okay. Well, Giorgio, you care to describe? Or sort of, uh, yeah, basically. Um, it, yeah, a, sure. So, like facial droop, um, uh, almost looks like the, the, the nerves that would control the, uh, the motor or the movement of your facial muscles, exactly. um, are, are not receiving signal. And, and it's like, literally as if you, you kind of shut off your computer, like, you know, it's there, but it's like, it's not on, it's not working. Uh, and, uh, you could kind of see that same kind of, yeah, the same lack of expression, uh, because yeah. of the, uh, the droop that's, that's being caused. And it's something that can be so profound, profound as to mimic a stroke, right? This is one of the classic yeah, quote, unquote, stroke mimics and that a person can have facial weakness, um, either unilateral, so occurring on one side of the face, but classically, um, individuals can have it on both sides uh, of the face, um, a bilateral boss, pa pulse palsy. And this only develops in approximately 3% of Lyme disease patients, but it can happen. And um, finally, other manifestations of neurologic involvement or nervous system involvement uh, in this disease is that individuals can develop uh, meningitis and ease, even encephalopathy. And recently, this is kind of really um, of late where a new condition, you know, for a long time, there was some controversy um, in which individuals were trying to understand, or really all of us are trying to understand, was described as chronic Lyme disease, right? And uh, you know, controversy in terms of how to diagnose it and sort of who had chronic Lyme disease or um, who didn't have it. And really it boiled down to, you know, there were individuals that had sort of these symptoms that were very consistent with Lyme disease, but would consistently test negative for the disease in serologic or studies of their blood looking for antibodies um, and other evidence of an active or previous Lyme disease infection. Um, but individuals had these symptoms that were very consistent with Lyme disease. We couldn't sort of nail down, um, you know, whether or not that was the case. And what was even more interesting was that individuals were treated with antibiotics that were um, typically used to treat Lyme disease. And these individuals would still go on to have um, recurrent symptoms, right? Even we're talking six months after being treat treated with uh, antibiotics. And actually, the CDC um, recently sort of 
uh, agreed to sort of a new term, and this is sort of the consensus now, and that there seems to be an entity um, that we call post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And basically, it is a syndrome in which individuals can have these symptoms consistent with Lyme disease more than six months after they have finished finished being treated for a Lyme disease infection. And what's, what's the treatment generally uh, like, Maurice? And so basically, this is uh, a course of antibiotics, um, specifically doxycycline, although there are other agents that can be used and that are, are very effective in treating Lyme disease. Um, but it's, a, it's an antibiotic course. It's a course of antibiotics. Um, you know, depending on the severity of illness, we might use other medications and that, that might uh, mean a difference between being hospitalized and being treated um, with IV antibiotics, but most individuals can be treated as an outpatient with oral antibiotics. Um, and it's and a, a you know, pretty frame? short course, uh, usually about uh, seven days of treatment. And um, that's it. It's an oral antibiotic, and most people tolerate it quite well. And But, but Mo, is it the kind of thing that... Um you only have a limited time to respond and, and get this treatment? Or can you start it, you know, two weeks after being bitten by uh, a tick? And so that's a great question. Really, we want to start this treatment as soon as possible, right? Ideally, um, in the first stages of this illness, right? As we said, you know, if we see things like erythema migraines um, or these systemic symptoms that imply that this is, um, spreading throughout the body, and especially if we can correlate that to uh, a time previously where a person was bitten by a tick, right? Within the last uh, couple of weeks, we want to treat that person as early as possible um, in order to have the best outcomes for that patient. So really, the answer to that question is uh, sooner, the sooner, the better. Um, and really, you know, sort of the longer that a person has an infection like this, the more the greater the chances of them having some of the complications that we mentioned. So really you want to treat um, in as close proximity to that initial exposure as possible in order to have the best outcomes. Um, but there are instances, and especially when we talk about post-treatment Lyme disease, right, or this, this kind of uh, chronic version of Lyme disease where individuals might be treated with antibiotics for longer periods of time, multiple courses of antibiotics, um, and unfortunately, when we talk about uh, chronic Lyme or post-treatment Lyme disease, um, it is something that is very difficult to treat. Um, really, even going, you know, sort of further back, it's even difficult to diagnose. And really, that's why I think if there's anything to take away from understanding Lyme disease is that we really want to focus our efforts on prevention, right? Um, that's, that's probably the biggest thing. Um, when we talk about uh, Lyme disease and other tick-borne pathogens. Um, so how can you prevent vector-borne illnesses? Uh, how do we avoid ticks? Do we just avoid the woods altogether? Do we limit ourselves, like isolate ourselves into bubbles or... Um, that's is there my a answer, to... man. Just, just <laughs> isolate, like, why are we going outside? We got coronavirus <laughs> out there. We have... 
you know, tick-borne illnesses and like the sun, as we said, right? You can get heat stroke and all of this stuff. And who knows, man? Like, it's I don't know what else is out there. It is like, this day is too dangerous. People cursing and throwing <laughs> stuff out of cars. People carrying guns down here in Georgia. So I'm just staying home in all reality. I think that's the, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Like, seriously. I, and that's the reason why at the beginning of the show, we said we don't want people living in states of fear, right? But we, we want to arm ourselves with information so that we can deal with these uh, risks and really prevent them and, and really live our lives in a way that gives us the the ideal chances of um, protecting ourselves and avoiding these things altogether. And so with that said, there are things that we can definitely do. And I think uh, starting with just staying from those areas, right? We talked, kind of talked about those high risk areas, you know, the brush where maybe you have a little bit of weeds and it's a little thick, maybe coming up to your ankles um, in a, a, and it's close to a wooded area where you think there might be little mice and little rodents and things running around that ticks love to hang out and feed off of. Well, guess what? The risk in that area might be a little increased as opposed to, you know, sort of central Brooklyn, <laughs> the concrete jungle. Um, you just have to be aware of your surroundings. Um, and there are other things that we can uh, do to protect ourselves, other behavioral things that can help us uh, prevent being um, fed on by blood hungry ticks. So Reed, so, you care to take us into that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you know you're going to be in an area like you were talking about, uh, an area with brush um, where you may have a high chance of running into a tick, right? Uh, so even though it's hot outside, one thing you can do is wear long socks, wear long pants, uh, you can wear high boots, long sleeves, you know, things that will cover your skin uh, in case a tick decides to try and fall down on you and sink its jaws in the, in, into your skin. Um, you can also use products such as uh, bug spray. Um, there are certain bug sprays that are less environmentally friendly. Um, so, you know, do some of your due diligence and your research on what kind of bug spray you're going to get. Um, but that is another way to prevent uh, ticks from getting to you. So now here's the redeeming thing, at least for me, about Lyme disease is I've taken all these precautions. I go home. I'm checking for ticks, too. Um, I'm, you know, mm -hmm. brushing myself off before I enter the indoors. Um, I'm going straight to the shower and I'm checking myself for ticks. Um, so say I find a tick on myself, right? Um, first thing I want to do, obviously, not freak out. Um, but I want to get that tick off of me because or the, we'll give you a second to freak. You can freak out a little. Cause it's like, yo, <laughs> like this thing, it has its hypostome in you, right? Like these jaws of life that are literally, literally dug into your skin and it's buried in there. The cool thing about ticks though, is that like, they actually secrete <laughs> this, uh, like their saliva is kind of like a cement. So they literally cement themselves into your skin. And so for real, for real, like, I don't know if you ever found it. I found a tick on myself when I was little and I didn't realize what it was i knew it was a little bug um but that thing was buried in there yo and like they can literally be so like stuck in there that it's hard like if you try to brush it off it's not going anywhere and so you freak out <laughs> i think it's normal and human to be like holy like yo i found a tick on me but don't all right as you were gonna say reed i think you were gonna say i know where you're going with this don't freak out and like yeah. just don't rip it out um okay i mean Definitely freak out a little bit. Yeah, I remember okay. when I was young. So be human. Um, I had a birthday party, and my parents found a tick in my brother's belly button. Uh, so he was oh. crying for 
quite quite some time before they finally got in there with some tweezers and were able to extract it. Um, but yeah, definitely try and get it out. Uh, try and get out. You all. have to be careful using those tweezers, though. And that's the yeah. that's the key. I'm glad you mentioned it because there is a particular way in which we're going to take this thing out. And um, actually, the CDC, if you if you're more of the picture oriented person, because it's kind of hard to envision this. Um, but, you know, the CDC actually has some very good resources on how to properly remove a tick. And so after you had that freak out period, right, don't freak out and just like snatch it out of yourself. Go to the CDC site and have this visual guide to um, uh, extract this tick. But really what's recommended is that you get a pair of tweezers or something that you can literally get down and you want to get as close to the skin as possible and really try to grasp the head of the tick. And what you want to do is gently, you're not going to just yank this thing out, but you're going to sort of ease it out of your skin. And the idea is really to try to keep the tick in as, as much, um, to keep the tick intact as much as possible, especially its mouth parts, which, um, you know, uh, it, it can break off inside you. So if you leave retain parts of the tick, um, right? That, that can also, not only can it just, it just sucks having tick parts in your skin, but also they can still transmit uh, some of these pathogens um, into your bloodstream if those parts remain in your skin. Also, if you excessively sort of, you know, use a lot of force in taking a tick out and you start to break the tick up or, you know, crush it, um, you can actually sort of break down a tick and, and some of the hemolymph of the tick or sort of the, the blood-like substances in a tick can get into your bloodstream and thereby increase your risk of infection. And so removing the tick, you don't want to be as delicate as possible. Um, and then you're going to basically, after you, you know, um, uh, you're going to, if you can't remove it yourself, you're going to leave it alone and sort of um, get to the doctor as soon as possible. I would recommend the emergency department because we're always there 24 seven and somebody will be able to, to help you remove that tick. If you're able to get the tick off uh, mouth parts and all, and with minimal disruption of the ticks um, body, then you're going to thoroughly clean the bite area with your hands and rubbing alcohol and or soap or, and water. So just be sure that when you're removing this tick, right, the, the impulse is to or the, the uh, sort of uh, reflexes to just snatch it out. Make sure that you do not destroy the body of this tick. Try to keep those mouth parts intact and uh, remove it. Because again, that you can increase your risk of actually acquiring um, infectious organisms from the body of that tick. And I know your impulses, you would just want to crush it right after. But again, crushing it in your fingers too can also transmit the infection um, to yourself. And so... Um, ideally, what we want you to do, especially if you're going to um, go to your medical professional or even the emergency department, is bag the tick, put it into either a small baggie or a small container. And if you are going to seek medical attention, um, which at that point, I, I would um, bring the tick with you um, as, as intact as possible. And there's actually services. Um, so, for instance, in the, in the state of Connecticut, actually, you can send the tick in. This is a governmental uh, service that will identify the tick and also test it for um, pathogens. And in other states, you can send a tick to a private service that will, will do the same testing to see what the chances of you um, acquiring some infectious organism from that tick were. So 
uh, definitely something that, you know, you might want to take advantage of um, as it could help in treatment, especially down the line if you were to develop symptoms. So Reed, is, is the belly button a common place to find a, a tick? I mean, that seems like a weird place for a tick to crawl around your whole body to Decide, oh, yeah, I'm going to pick this valley. Because I'm going to nestle with myself right in your stinky little belly butt. Yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> People like... don't clean that very well, so it stinks. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, I wouldn't. I've never smelled a, a belly butt. A belly butt. <laughs> I'll take your word on it. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're wild. They found um, the same bacteria found in, like, whale's stomachs and some dude's belly button in England or something. <laughs> no um, way. But, yeah. <laughs> Um, but I wouldn't say oh, yeah, think, the most common place, but it's definitely, it definitely kind of follows, uh, the general rules for where they might bite you. Um, ticks tend to head for areas with thin skin and blood supplies that are near the surface of the skin. Um, so hotspot areas are like the groin, the buttocks, uh, armpits. Um, one of the biggest ones is behind the knee in that crease. Um, it, so An interesting one is on the back of heads, uh, but that seems to really only be for children. So for children, a spot to look out for is the back of the neck or like right where the hair starts. That's, yeah. It seems like these are the same areas that we identified as places we want to put ice packs in the heat-related illnesses episode that we just did. Yeah. Uh, it's like the soft spots in our, in our armor. Um, yeah. So just like, Pay attention between to so between between the gluteal muscles so literally between the butt cheeks. Um, this is why if you you know you're doing your chick tick checks at home, you want to do so with a mirror preferably so you can look at those hard to reach and visualize areas. Um, but yeah, they can be nestled between uh, the butt crack. They can be under the scrotal sac. Um, very you know pretty much any place on the body. But they do like these what we call intertriginous areas. These areas that are very moist and cool, you know, they're out of view. And so they hang out there because they minimize the chances of detection, but also they're comfortable places for ticks to feed. And they also have very good blood supply in those regions. And so if I were a tick, honestly, that's where I would hang out. I don't know about the belly button thing. Kind of, yeah, uh, very... <laughs> I would stay away from the crotch too, probably, but you know, uh, it's like a very a Pablo Escobar ask uh, approach <laughs> to finding a hideout they're like yeah i want i want something by the water and i want yeah. <laughs> exactly man so ticks like i said these are living organisms right they want to be comfortable and chill so that's how i like to think of them things but also going back to um what uh reed mentioned about protecting yourself um so you can also use uh sprays on your clothing your shoes your socks with an insecticide called permethrin. And this is essentially a compound that kills ticks on contact. Um, this should not be sprayed on the skin. So that's one thing to be mindful of, but putting it on the outer coverings that you're going to be wearing, right? So if you tuck your, your pants into your socks, you're going to put the permethrin around those areas on your socks, sort of spray it on yourself um, and over those clothed areas. Um, if you're going to treat exposed skin, you're going to use something called diethyltalumide or DEET, D-E-E-T, or a chemical called IR3535. Um, now, one thing I want to say is that the safety profiles with these substances, and I'm, I'm wary of them too, but they do have good safety profiles. Um, actually, the um, 
IR3535, which is more commonly used in Europe, has an excellent safety profile. And, um, you know, if you're going to be out with exposed skin, these are the the agents that you would use um, to prevent uh, ticks from wanting to feed on you. If you are taking bags out for outdoor sports like tennis bags or, you know, sort of, um, you know, you have some other things that might ticks might sort of dwell on and and hang out on. You can spray those down with uh, permethrin as well. Um, and you can and there's also actually preparations of DEET that you can use to um, cover your clothing and bags and stuff. And so just something to be mindful of as far as protecting yourself. And, and if you um, still get if you still get bitten um, and you have this tick on your body, it's just trying to hang out in its its uh, hideaway spot. Um, you find it and you remove it and uh, with with the tweezers. Uh, mm-hmm. how, is there a time period in which you want to evict your your new friend, uh, or is this something that it just basically um, as soon as possible? Uh, is it worth it to go Good to the question. ER with it still lodged instead of trying to figure out if I'm going to get the bag? Um, mm. So you do want to m- remove it as, as soon as possible, you know, um, you know, could it wait maybe until you want somebody, if you want, if you're uncomfortable with taking it out yourself, because as we said, this is a delicate process and you want to be able to remove this thing by minimizing damage to your tissues, but also minimizing chances of, um, acquiring, uh, an infection, uh, I think getting to an emergency department or a place with a medical professional is a great idea. Um, one thing that we do need to be mindful of, and I'm glad you brought this up, Giorgio, is really the time frame for disease transmission. Um, this is where we're kind of lucky, right? Because it takes, or at least from uh, the data that we have available, ticks have to be attached for a good amount of time before they're, the likelihood of them transmitting a, an illness to us becomes greater. And so uh, 24 hours is kind of you know, a, a cutoff, really the longer they're attached, the more likely or the, the increased uh, chances of you acquiring an infection. Um, greater than 36 hours is kind of the cutoff where we begin to see increased rates of acquiring things like Lyme disease. Um, if that tick has been there for 36 hours or more, you know, a lot of times you don't, people don't really know when they got there unless they said, Hey, I was out in the woods like this time you know, then you might have a good time frame as when it's to been, uh, been attached there. But sometimes people don't know it. It might be for days. We do say, you know, you want that thing off of you as soon as possible. You're not going to go, you know, sort of train and work out and then go get it taken off. You want to take that off sooner rather than later, because the longer it's attached there, the higher the risk of acquiring a path, a pathogen being present. And so, yeah, man, that's, that's what we got to do now. Before we wrap up, I just want to talk about some other tick-borne illnesses because it is, again, fascinating, um, but also scary. <laughs> we, there is some, all right, ladies and gentlemen, I just have to be clear on health in Harlem. There is some, a little bit of scare factor that we try to get in there to you all so that people can act on this information, right? So, uh, but we do, I, I want you all to be informed about what is going on regarding these diseases. And so there are some other things that we have to sort of be aware of. And um, especially here in the United States, Lyme disease, although it is the most common tick-borne disease, it's not the only one. There are things like babesiosis, relapsing fever, 
um, Colorado tick fever, tularemia, Q fever. Uh, one thing to really understand is that uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever in particular is the one that is perhaps the most lethal. And this is the one that, I, you know, unfortunately with all of these illnesses, they very closely mimic a lot of the viral syndromes that we talk about, including COVID-19, right? And this is why, you know, if you're really feeling funky and you're having those headaches, myalgias, body aches, um, fever, but in particular, right, you see any of these rashes. So that erythema, like that erythema migraines rash that we talked about with, uh, right, that's Lyme disease. We want you to be treated for that because of the complications that we talked about that can come down the line, but especially with things like Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Now, this is what we call a rickettsial illness. Um, it is Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and there are other spotted fever group rickettsial infections. Basically, the lowdown with Rocky Mountain spotted fever is caused by this bacteria called rickettsia, rickettsia, rickettsii. And this, as we said, is the most, perhaps most deadly of these tick-borne illnesses. And the way that we kind of recognize it, what the tip-off is, is a rash, right? So anytime, and this is what I teach our residents and even students that I work with is that, hey, you know, rashes, there are very many rashes that are, you know, many times not um, of much concern. They can be uncomfortable, they can be unsightly, but they're not often deadly, but there are some red flags where we say, hey, you need medical attention, right? And any rash in the context of fever, especially in older individuals, you know, adults, um, uh, because we do see a good amount of rash related illness um, that are usually viral syndromes in children, but rash plus a fever is always a red flag. Um, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to die on the site on spot, but especially if you have a rash that develops on your arms or legs, especially in the palms and soles. If it shows up on the, on the palms and soles, that is a red flag. If you're having a fever with this and a per, also a person that's very ill and having these sort of viral-like syndrome, right? These uh, symptoms. And especially if you can correlate that to a recent exposure to a tick or you were doing activities or engaged in activities that put you at risk for um, having been being bit by a tick, we, I strongly encourage you to seek medical attention immediately um, because indeed that could be Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Um, this is something that is documented as being present in all 50 states. We do see a higher concentration in the southeastern United States. Um, I know it's funny because the name says Rocky Mountain spotted fever, right? You would think it's in, mostly in the Rocky Mountains. Um, that's really where it was sort of discovered and characterized. Um, but it is something that is very uh particularly present down South. And, um, you know, I make a big deal of this because the mortality rate without treatment of this illness is in excess of 20%, right? So one in five individuals with this infection um, that is not treated with antibiotics, they will die. Um, whereas when you're treated with antibiotics, the mortality rate is less than 1%, right? So huge difference and that's why I'm really making a case that, hey, if you notice any of those uh, symptoms or these red flags that imply that this could be Rocky Mountain spotted fever, you need to seek medical attention immediately, right? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You go to your nearest emergency department um, or clinical professional, medical professional, and you get treated because this is something that could uh, 
unfortunately lead to serious outcomes. And so, man, uh, I hate getting that out there, you know, like a sort of somber end to all of this. But yeah, that's that's one thing that we definitely need to be aware of. Um, more interesting entities before we wrap up uh, things such as tick paralysis. And so this is something that we actually see uh, with those some of those hard ticks that we talked about. So Dermacenter, Variabilis, um, even Ixodes, Scapularis, uh, some of these uh, hard ticks that when they bite you and they're lingering and sort of secreting these various substances into your bloodstream, they can cause like kind of a, a, a state of malaise in individuals and even temporary paralysis. And that condition won't improve until that tick is removed. Um, actually quite fascinating because this is sort of what we uh, call a neurotoxidrome, essentially, uh, where the actively attacked, attached tick um, can cause these vase symptoms and, and lead to worsening neurologic deficits. So it mimics things like Guillain-Barre syndrome, in which individuals can have this really profound weakness and even paralysis. And uh, really the treatment involves finding and removing the tick. And that usually allows for complete neurologic uh, recovery in a matter of days, right? Um, so fascinating stuff, man. Like I said, these small, you know, we always worry about the house-sized threat to us, but these little, <laughs> little creatures can cause paralysis. Uh, also over the past decade, uh, the Lone Star tick, which is this medium-sized reddish-brown tick, um, also very common in the southeastern United States, has been in implicated as a likely cause of a severe red meat allergy. Um, and we're seeing increased incident or in increased uh, cases of this. And, uh, you know, it's mainly been found in North America, also in Europe, in Asia, Central America, and Africa. And um, basically, it's believed that it produces this sugar from its gut called galactose alpha-1,3 galactose, and that is injected into the host during a tick bite, and it could um, basically lead to sensitivities to red meat, so beef, pork, venison, even rabbit. And uh, this sugar, it's believed that it's because this sugar, right, this uh, galactose alpha-1,3 galactose is found in those meats, and that's why um, individuals can develop that sensitivity. So. Yeah, man, you can become allergic to steak and, uh, yeah, your uh, pork chops. So fascinating, right, and right. scary, but these are, are very real risks, and hence why we decided. I know it's tried, yo, but unbelievable, especially in the summer, man. Like, can you imagine? Like, I'd be traumatized every summer, like that damn tick. <laughs> it's like you go to a barbecue and you can't, <laughs> can't enjoy because, you know, of a, a tick bite like years ago. That is, is wild. So anyway. Um, yeah, that's, that's the lowdown on tick-borne illnesses and it's just in time as Imani, the, uh, princess just decided to join us, <laughs> but yeah, man. <laughs> so yeah, what would you guys, I guess if we were to have our individual take-homes, I guess, what would the message be? Maybe we could just start with, uh, I don't know, Michael, you want to take a stab? Uh, yeah. And I guess my takeaway would be, uh, you know, guard yourself, make sure you're safe out there. It's a crazy world, even in the concrete jungle, you know? They got ticks in the real jungle. We got ticks in the concrete jungle as well. Word. So, uh, you know, just I would say, you know, if there's anything that 
you want to know more about or maybe something we didn't even cover, you know, you could always research for yourself. Um, and and I, yeah, just to go to the CDC. That's I, I would recommend exactly. if you are interested in conducting your own research. You don't believe it. We're telling you, you think we're feeding you a bunch of hogwash. Well, you know, check it out for yourself. Um, the information's out there. NYC.gov actually has some good uh, advice and, and information about ticks and tick-borne illnesses. Indeed. But we hope that, you know, you guys listen to us and, you know, maybe take what I, we're saying uh, as, as you know, factual information. Um, but, yeah, uh, so that, <laughs> that uh, pretty much closes out our program for today. Uh, so I want to say thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for tuning in. As always, the show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself. Yeah.